This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for February 5th, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Listening to God, either using the, the Jesus prayer that we had talked about at the beginning of Epiphany or some other method, but spending time listening to God, you probably encountered the question, how do I know if it is God? How do I know if God is the one who is talking to me? And how do I know if I do that, that that would be the right thing to do? What would that look like? It's a common question. I mean, a lot of people have it. It's not unusual. And it's a difficult one because it's sort of like saying, if I learned how to play the violin, how would I know if I was excellent at it? Well, first off, don't ask your mother. Because <laughs> she'll say it sounds great no matter what. It, it It's tough because it's not something that becomes immediately obvious and we tend to want immediate results don't we we live in a in a world in which um if you have a headache you take a pill you know you take an aspirin get rid of the headache you know we want things to be gone you know almost instantaneously and yet that isn't really the way it works with god it isn't this immediate kind of thing that we become comfortable and situated in the relationship. We want that in our marriages, too. I mean, when we date someone, you know, we're always looking for that magic. Remember the song, This Magic Moment, Jay and the Americans? Maybe the people here are old enough they actually remember that. I'll say it at 11 o'clock, and they'll all go, huh? (laughs) But but that's what we want. You know, we fall in love and love at first sight and forever and all those sorts of things. And, and, And the problem with all of those things is that how do you know if it's real or not? And truth be told, you don't really know for quite a while. I mean, you have to kind of work through an awful lot of changes and difficulties and um, putting up with one another and learning the things about the other person that you really don't like and, and, and figuring out what you do about that. And at that point is when you really kind of know whether or not you really want to be married I mean, you can get married legally, but even that doesn't change that you haven't had that um, comfortableness, that closeness, that intimacy that, that is just sort of where you can almost finish each other's sentences because um, you know each other that well. It, it takes time to do that. But there are some signs that you can look for. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age, to know whether or not what God is um, saying to us in our prayers and how we would know whether or not that was true, what you typically hear is, well, you do what God tells you to do and you'll see it by the fruit that it bears. You know, if it bears good fruit, then you'll know that's true. It's even been translated into is if you will obey God, God will reward you. I always thought that's really sort of an anti-biblical notion, honestly, because it doesn't really quite work that way. I mean, explain that one to Abraham. You know, he left his entire country, packed up everything and left for the promised land and never, ever found it himself. 
Matter of fact, his sons never found it. And his sons' sons, it was actually many generations later when Moses went them that they finally returned and came back to the promised land. And also, even Moses didn't get in. So that immediate benefit kind of thing doesn't work. Some people call that the prosperity gospel. You know, if it makes you feel good, then it must be from God. If it makes you feel bad, then it must be from Satan. Right? Isn't that what the prosperity gospel says, though? But again, explain that one to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. This doesn't feel good, so it must not be of God. I should get down. Right? Now, the, the real fruit of doing God's work is, first of all, yeah, you do have to try it. Isn't whether or not it makes you feel good. The real question is, does it make you feel serene? Does it make you feel peaceful? Does it help you come to acceptance? Even in the midst of things that seem unacceptable. You know, are you able to trust in God enough to know that all is well? And has this peace that passed all understanding so invaded who you are that you can have sure and quiet confidence that God is leading you? Now, you might say, well, that seems like a really difficult kind of thing. How how should I know whether or not I should be serene about something if something bad is happening? Well, I can give you countless examples of where it happens in Scripture. I mean, we just mentioned Abraham. Do you remember the story of Abraham taking his son, his only son, as they say, Isaac, up to the hill? And God says to sacrifice his only son, so he takes him all the way up there, ties him up, puts him up on the altar, you know, takes the knife ready to kill him. Everybody's thinking, how in the world could he do that? That's horrible. But do you get any sense in that story that Abraham's ever anxious about anything? That's because he knows it's God. And and the real key to that story, by the way, in case you don't like it, is what he tells Isaac previously. When Isaac says, well, we have the fire, and we've got the wood, and we've got, you know, an altar, and we've got the knife. Where's the the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Remember that? God will provide the lamb. And surely enough, what happens when Abraham gets ready to strike? God provides the lamb. A piece of that passes understanding. He's ready to plunge a dagger into the heart of his only child. And yet he knows that even if I do that, God will make it right. God will provide the lamb. And ultimately we know that God provides the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at the example of Jesus on the cross. As he is, you know, hanging there and being mocked and spit upon and, you know, said, hey, if you're really the son of God, come down off of there, you know. And the thief saying, you know, if you're the son of God, get us all off of here. You know, and everybody's making fun of him and all. And what's his response to it? Remember what he says? For they know not what they do. Serenity. Peace that passes understanding. You know, Jesus isn't a victim, even though people may be trying to victimize him. Because he knows that God is in control. And so he is 
following what it is that God wants him to do. It's not particularly that he thought it was a good idea, by the way. If you remember the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Um, my prayer might have been a little more urgent than that. But, uh, but his approach was, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, how could he say that? He could say that because he trusted implicitly that even if the wrong decisions were made, even if the wrong choices were taken, that if you do them for God, or at least what, you know, that's your intention, that God will find a way to redeem it. That God will find a way to make it work. If you've done everything that you can to try to discern the will of God, and you launch out in an effort to see if that's going to happen or not, then you don't need to be afraid. Because God will find a way to make it work. And we see that over and over and over again in scriptures. We see it over and over again in the apostles, don't we? Remember, I've told you a story before about St. Peter who was in Rome. Um, he was in captivity and house arrest, really. And it came time when Nero started persecuting people that the church told him, you've got to get out of town, they're going to kill you. And so he is leaving town. And as he's walking out of town, he sees someone coming toward him. And when he sees him, he realizes that it's Jesus. And he passes by him going towards Rome. And he stops and says, Lord, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to die, Peter. Where are you going? And Peter turns around and goes back. How do you do that? You know, we hear the story of the martyrs of the early church who walk into the, 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 the sacrifice to the lions or to gladiators or other wild beasts singing hymns. Because you mean this for ill, but God will take it and use it for good. You see, they weren't um, victims. They may have been victimized, but they weren't ever victims Matter of fact, they were martyrs. The word martyr has such a terrible connotation in our day. The word martyr really means they were witnesses. They were witnesses to the power of God. Do you ever think about how odd that is? For a mother, young mother, new Christian, holding her baby, the lion comes charging towards her, and she holds out her baby for the lion to eat the baby first. That's a witness of the power of God. Would that have been the first thing that came to your mind? How is it a witness of the power of God? Well, it's a witness of the power of God because in it, we have shown people that God is more powerful than the world. We have shown people that we're not afraid to offer anything. Because the truth is, is that yes, you can kill me. You can take away everything I have. You can, you know, do all sorts of things, torture me. But ultimately, my God will win. Because even if you kill me, God will raise me from the dead. If you strip me of my job, God will find another. If you, you know, take away my fortune, God will enable me to find another one, if that's what he wants for me. Because all of that is predicated upon his desire and his will. That's how you have peace. That's why they call it peace that passes all understanding. Remember Paul calls it foolishness to the Greeks 
foolishness to the Jews and a stumbling block to the Gentiles? The gospel is, what is? It's goofy. If you look at it in the ways of the world, it's just silly. It doesn't work at all because it's not predicated on power that only believes in this world. It doesn't believe that this is the end. We see even minor examples of it from people who may or may not be Christian. You ever thought about the the young men who were the first to land at Normandy Beach or Omaha Beach? You know, they they started to lower the gates of the LSTs, the landing um, vehicles, and when they did, of course, bullets just came flying at them. So they pulled them back up and told them to jump over the side. How do you do that? I mean, anybody in their right mind would say, I think I'll stay back in England. This isn't a good idea. (laughs) It never works. You know, I know what happens. Somebody's got to be in front, and whoever's in front, we know what happens to them. You know, they die. Why would they do that? But you won't be there. It doesn't matter, does it? It's faith in something much bigger than you are. People can even have that in worldly things like their country and their, their beliefs about what our country's about. How much more so can we have it in what God will do? And chances are pretty good, I think, at least for Americans, that a lot of those boys who were probably 18, 19 years old also knew that, well, yeah, they, they're, I'm probably not coming back But it's okay, because God will take care of me. There's that old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. There's probably a lot of truth in that. So what does it look like then? How would I know if I've really come to that point? Well, the inner knowing would be that sense of peace and serenity that you have in the midst of conflict and difficulty. Instead of worry and fretting and, and anxiety and, 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 you know, anger, what comes about is a sense of serenity and calm that all is well. All will be well. All is well. And we see that in today's gospel lesson, finally. It's an interesting story. Jesus and the disciples had been in the synagogue in Capernaum, and Jesus had undoubtedly been teaching. And he left the synagogue on a Saturday morning, went across the street to Peter's house, which is Peter's house was right across the street from the synagogue. And as he goes in, they come and say, you know, that Peter's mother-in-law, I always thought it was interesting, you know, they never give Peter's mother-in-law's name. She's mentioned a couple of times in there, but they never say what her name is. I wonder if Peter said, no, I don't want her name. No. But I suspect after she ran, he ran off and left his wife and family, he, they probably weren't happy about it. But So he go, they go in and they say, she's, she has a fever. And it says, Jesus went and he reached out his hand and he took her, took her and he lifted her up off of the bed. And immediately she was healed. And, and here's where we see what the real fruits of if you're following God's will are. It's not prosperity. It's not, you know, joy, excitement, you know, ecstatic times. It's not the good life necessarily. What does it say she did? Do you remember? She immediately served them. 
Now, I've heard some sermons where they say it's just like a man. He healed her so she could get up and fix him dinner. Now, that isn't what the scripture says, in all fairness. It just says he healed her. And, I, and I'd like to believe, personally, that she got up and served because she wanted to. That was her response to this gift. She had been given this gift of healing, and she wanted to give back. Do you find that in your life? That in what you have been given, that people who look at you say, these people are always wanting to give back. They're always wanting to do something else. They don't complain or gripe. They're always looking for what they can do to help. Because that's a sure sign that God is actually working on you and changing you from the inside. You know, oftentimes people say, well, how do you do that when you're so mad? How do you forgive somebody when, when, they're, when it's not forgivable? Well, number one, only God gets to decide what's forgivable or not. But even more so, if you don't forgive, the only person you're really hurting is you. Because you become consumed with this. And what ends up happening ultimately is that it takes away your servant's heart. Your desire to trust people. Your desire to be of service to people. The way you forgive is really pretty simple. You say, here, God, it's yours. You don't pretend it's not a sin. You don't pretend you haven't been harmed. You just say, vengeance belongs to God, not to me. So here, God, take care of it when you think it's appropriate. What's amazing is he does. Oftentimes it's not in a time that we would have liked for him to do it. It's not like taking the aspirin and having the headache go away. But he does do it. And the only time we have problems with that is when we keep saying, you know, I've reconsidered. I'd like to have that back, please. <laughs> Which, if you're like me, that's the real struggle is leaving it with God. You know, letting him keep it. But real forgiveness doesn't come because somehow or other you're such a wonderful person. It doesn't come out of effort that you make other than to let it go. Sometimes that it's a lot of effort just to let it go. Sometimes it might take a long time to let it go. But you just keep letting and letting and letting and letting until finally you quit grabbing it back. And it becomes second nature. And it just becomes part of what is. So if you really want to see the, the fruits of a, of a prayer life, the fruits of a, someone who really spends their time living in um, and with God... Don't look for it in ways that make you feel better. Because sometimes the things that God has you do will make you feel better. Sometimes they will make you feel worse. You know that old saying, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable? I mean, there's a lot of truth in it. No, look for it in that sense of peace that passes understanding that comes over you about it. I've turned it over to God. It belongs to him. You know, whatever is, is. I'll finish with this story. My dad, when um, 1993, right before I came here, actually, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And um, he was told he had a year to live. That was in June. And 
during the course of that year, the can- they said, you know, we got the cancer that was in his esophagus, but it's the kind of cancer that spreads through the body, and it will show up somewhere. Well, come April, we found out that it had shown up again, and where it showed up then was his bone, which is, from what I understand, the most painful way to die you can possibly get. It's from bone cancer. And Dad never seemed worried about it. It just amazed me. Because I never thought of my dad as someone who was particularly holy. I mean, he wasn't a particularly religious kind of guy. He was a factory worker. You know, he liked to drink beer. You know, his language wasn't always perfect. He was just a guy. But what I saw in his acceptance of death, and not only death, by the way, but a painful death, just amazed me. And I said, Dad, are you scared? And he goes, no, not really. And I said, why not? And he said, well, I figure that it'll be okay. And I said, just like that? And he said, just like that. And surely enough, as the months went on, he became less and less able to do things and eventually became bedfast and eventually got to the point where he couldn't even touch him without it hurting him. But even at the very end, those last few days, he would smile. He would tell you he loved you. He never, ever became angry about it. Even though people had to clean him after he soiled himself and wash his body, it never frustrated him and brushed his teeth. I mean, he would, he would cry out in pain if you did something that hurt, but the moment you were done, you know, it was, it was a sort of an automatic reflex. He would just cry out in pain. But he wasn't mad at you about it. It just hurt. And even when he died, there was a sense of peace that he left behind. It taught me a lot about the peace of God that passes all understanding. And over the years, I've been blessed to be with a lot of people who've been dying. And I've seen people who were not considered very Christian by a lot of people. They say, well, you know, they're they're Christian, but, you know, those people who were perfectly contented when they were facing death. And I've met people who'd been to church every Sunday of their life practically who were terrified. Which one do you think did the will of the Father? You see, ultimately, that's really the test. That's really the proof. That's really the fruit. Is not necessarily a human outcome or a worldly outcome, but a spiritual outcome, that peace, that serenity that pervades us. So this week, I want, to, I want you to look at your life. Think about that as you go throughout the day. And, and ask yourself two things. And your response to the way people are treating you, good or ill, is how do I feel? Am I serene? Am I contented? Or am I discontented? You know, and, and ask yourself, what does that then say about how much time I'm spending with God and listening to him? And secondly, ask yourself, how do other people see me? If I were to ask the average person, what would they say? Would they say, there's just something peaceful about that person? Accepting and loving and present. 
Because it is in that kind of witness that we truly are martyrs. Not necessarily the kind that get eaten by lions, but the kind that are witnesses to the power of God to move in our lives. And it's by those things that we begin to see that we are truly bearing fruit for the kingdom and that all of the efforts that we have made to listen to God and to attempt to do that which he calls us to do are bearing fruit. To the extent that we struggle and try to hold on to things that aren't working anymore or things that don't happen anymore or things that we don't like, to that extent we're clinging to the world. And then ask yourself this one final question. Which one ultimately do I want to end up with? A world that is perishing or a world that is eternal? Because ultimately the answer to that question will tell you whether or not you really want to follow God. Amen.